Well, we're in a series looking at the most misused verses in the Bible, and we, we've been saying uh, over these past, uh, is this week four? I think it's week four, three or four, I can't remember. Um, but we've been saying the goal is not to just like debunk something, it's not to like dismantle something. You know, you, you do that and you're just left, oh, that's depressing, thanks. The goal is to kind of say, well, let's kind of look at how maybe it might be misused, misunderstood, but then let's turn and say, what does this passage mean? What is the beauty and the brilliance that is contained in this passage? And, and hopefully by the end of this series, at the end of our semester, I walk away with just a little bit, I don't know, uh, better honed skills at like picking up a book that can be kind of intimidating. I don't know if you guys feel that way, but it can be kind of intimidating and it's sometimes hard to understand and there are places in it that I'm just kind of like, that's confusing. I don't know what that means. And so hopefully it's a little bit more accessible to me and I'm a little bit more at home in my story, in the story of Jesus. So that's, that's kind of our goal here. Um, next week, uh, just kind of try to give a little bit of a preview as to kind of where we're going. We're going to be looking at the verse, uh, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who were called by my name, and then the rest of that many of you could probably recite. Um, in a few weeks beyond that, how, how many of you guys know, anyone here, know this uh, October, what, what's October 31st? <laughs> Halloween, you pagans. No. <laughs> yeah, it is Halloween, and I will be out there trick-or-treating with my four kids, I promise. Um, but yes, it's Halloween. October 31st, if, if anyone here grew up Presbyterian, Christian, Reformed, some of those denominations, you probably celebrated instead of Halloween, many of you. Anyone? All Saints Day, All Saints Day is, the fir- is actually the first. All Hallows Eve, yes, but you called it Thank you. We have a good Reformed person back there. Yes, Reformation Day. Reformation Day. Well, so every, every October 31st is, is when we remember and celebrate this, this event that happened to this young um, monk um, who, who uh, nailed his 95 objections to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and, and set a blaze of Reformation in the church that we sit uh, in a church which is a part of that. It's called the Protestant Church church. And so the Protestant Reformation, well, this coming up, one in particular, is kind of unique because it's the 500th anniversary. 500 years ago, this October 31st, so you can dress up like Martin Luther for Halloween and um, be biblical, uh, is, is when we celebrate that, that enor- enormous amount of things changed. Like I said, we're, we're living in, in the stream of, of a community, which uh, most of us anyway, which, which would call ourselves Protestant, even if we don't entirely know what that means. You, you might have grown up Protestant. So we're gonna take a week and kind of look at this 500th anniversary. Like, what does that mean? What are the implications? Was this a good thing? Was, or is it a bad thing? Are there good things that came out of it? Some challenging bad things that came out of it? And just kind of explore. That's, we'll do that in a couple weeks as well. Tonight, though, what we're going to be looking at is one particular verse, but before I get into it, I want to do like, um, I want to tack on to um, something Pastor Tim, who did a fantastic job this last week, uh, looking at a passage in Jeremiah. If you remember, uh, Pastor Tim talked about this, um, this prediction. Do you guys remember this? This was all over the news. It was kind of the buzz, right? There was, there was a prediction that what would happen? 
world's going to end. Was it Saturday that it was? 23rd or something like that. And, and Tim kind of referenced some of this. Um, and what, what, what's so fast, in, in fact, if, you, if you're interested, you might be interested in looking up. There's a great article by Ed Stetzer. Ed Stetzer is a professor at uh, Wheaton College. And he wrote an article for uh, Christianity Today, uh, which was titled, I love the title of it. He says, no, the world won't end next week and there's no such thing as a Christian numerologist. <laughs> and so he does a great job ahead of time before this happened, kind of laying, laying that out. But I thought what, what might be kind of just interesting to note, because this, this happens every couple years. You know, this comes along. It was Harold Camping a couple years ago. And if, if you work in kind of a church environment, if you work in a, in a place where maybe someone knows you're a Christian, you, you probably have had this experience where people kind of run you and like, hey, did you hear about this? Like, do you know, like, you know what's going on? They're wanting to know, like, if you have any inside information, you know, like, is there something you haven't been telling us, you know, kind of thing. And so I have these conversations, and I have had dozens and dozens of these conversations, because every couple years, someone comes and they say, I figured it out. I calculated it. I counted numbers. I looked at this. I had secret information. I did whatever, and I figured out the when, and oftentimes in conjunction with it, it was with this one, they look at world events, typically natural disasters, and they say, this, let me tell you God's mind and what's going on behind this, okay? This, this natural disaster, people lost their lives. Let me tell you, either those people were, they, they assign blame, typically. It's because you didn't do this or because you guys are gambling down there in the south or you guys, you know, whatever it might be. This sort of thing happens. And what's, I think, important to understand is Jesus specifically addressed those things and number one, he, he told people, no one will know the day or the hour, so don't waste your time. Don't count the days. That you will not know. It'll be like lightning. You ever try to... I was outside a lightning storm on my back porch a couple weeks ago. Do you guys remember that fantastic lightning storm? Right? And I got my camera, and I keep like, click, ah, dang it, click, ah. You know, I couldn't get it, right? Why? Because I don't know what's coming. And Jesus said, yeah, that's kind of what it's going to be like. You will not be aware of Jesus's return of judgment. And then secondly, he even warns, and in fact, you can go back and, and read Luke chapter 13. Some of his followers say, hey, do you remember those, those people were killed, uh, their blood was shed, and remember the Tower of Siloam fell? Natural disasters. Building fell on these people and killed them. And he says, oh, in fact, I'll just read it to you. He said, of those... Uh, that the Tower of Siloam fell on and killed. Do you think they were more sinful than all the people who live in Jerusalem? And he says, no, I tell you. Jesus specifically warned against his followers trying to interpret natural disasters, people's lives being lost in mass or anything like that, and attributing to God or his, his actions or attributing fault to people. He specifically says not to do it. And so it's one of those warnings. I would just say next time, Someone comes to you and says, oh, guess what? You know, I heard. First of all, you can stop listening. I don't mean in a disrespectful way, but stop listening for truth, okay? If, you know, it's, think about it like, oh, I'm entering the Star Wars universe. Okay, science fiction, sure, okay? But it's not real. And number two, these people who are quite sure of it, ask them to deed their property to you the day before. <laughs> Seriously. I gave a challenge one time to a guy who was in church. I promise it's going to happen. Pastor Brent, I know it's going to I said, okay, well, just deed me your car. Just, just the day before, because you won't need it when everything's burning, right? Just, just deed me your car. Prove to me you really believe this. I didn't get his car, needless to say. So anyway, a warning for us to be discerning. 
And of course, one of the great dangers is, as, as we're not, as the church is not, there was an article on, I think it was Fox News or something, that said, uh, Christ, you know, it was that type, Christian numerologist predicts the end. Well, you read enough of those, and people start going, you know, if these Christians can't get a week in advance, if they can't get that right, how can we be sure they got right 2,000 years ago? Right? It drags Christ's name through the mud. So we have to be very discerning, very careful that we don't engage us. And fortunately, Jesus gave us parameters. He said, don't. It's useless. And, and don't because you don't know the mind of God. And so we need to be very careful. Next, it, it'll come around again, I promise. <laughs> when it does, we need to remember, oh yeah. One of my favorite stories, my dad. Remember Y2K? Remember that one? So we had a bunch of people over at, at our house. And you know, we were talking, and we're like, ah, I don't believe, nothing's gonna happen. Well, my dad goes outside to the fuse box, and he's like, <laughs> and so he's watching, and right, he goes, <laughs> everything goes off. You're just, ah! you know, the screaming in the house. He's so bad. He's just, he, he's so evil. But um, anyway, let us be wise. Let us be wise. There was another man, mid-1800s. Mid His name was uh, uh, Charles Taze Russell. Charles Taze Russell was, he grew up, he was a former Presbyterian and Congregationalist, and he, he met this group of people called Second Advent Congregations. Second, not Seventh-day Adventism, Second Advent. It's these people who, who are so focused, their primary thing is like uh, end times, apocalyptic kind of stuff. And he met some of these people, and it, it awakened in him this fascination for prophecy. Huh. You think you've got to figure it out, okay. And he kind of went back and looked at some numbers and started publishing some things. And, um, and in, this, in this time, he, he published one um, uh, a magazine called Zion's Watchtower and Herald of Christ's Presence. This was in 1879. And he, he starts publishing more. And in, in 1881, he actually, he's got a small group of followers. And he says, we need to actually bring this message to people because the true church is... It doesn't really exist anymore. Every other church is kind of off. God's revealed it to me. He figured out, I've, okay, I've, it's been seven millennia since the creation. And so, and so he said, okay, here's when Christ is going to come back. And it was 1914. He said, that's when it's going to happen. He's going to come back in 1914. And so he, he makes the prediction, um, doesn't happen, as we all know. Uh, people are disillusioned. He dies two years later, they lose a lot of people, kind of a tailspin of this church group. And, and so new guy comes in, his last name is Rutherford, and he's kind of the new guy instead of Russell, and he joins the group, and it kind of starts building slowly, slowly, and he sets another date of 1918, and it doesn't happen. Same kind of thing. Sets another date, 1925, and there's like, you know, like 40% reduction in the church. Well, in the 50s, post-World War II, 50s and 60s, it just starts exploding, there's over a million of these missionaries of this group going about in, um, I think it was uh, 18, let's see if I have the date here, in uh, 18, or 1931, they, they actually officially changed their name to Jehovah's Witnesses and started publishing in 1964. They kind of did their own translation of the Bible, not translation, but version, kind of a few kind of tweaks and changes in there and, and that sort of thing. The, the final prediction was 1975. 1975 is when Jesus was going to return. Same thing. 
Um, and so you don't really have any missionaries going around until really the mid-80s and it starts picking back up and, and that sort of thing. But this whole movement, and you may know many, of, many people or some people, neighbors, friends, maybe even family, who are a part of a movement that came out of a man who was so fascinated by trying to do the thing that Jesus said, please don't do and not to do, and, and created this movement that, that claimed to be following the God of the Bible. And, and it, it kind of ends with this reality of they have, they have a very twisted view, not just of time, but of the person at the center of time, Jesus himself. And so for the Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is not the uncreated creator. Jesus is... Jehovah God, they would say, his first creation. It was the first domino that got everything else going. In fact, he, he is, according to the Jehovah's Witnesses, he's the, in the Old Testament, he's the Archangel Michael, a, a wonderful, high, exalted being, but a created being, and he is an angelic being. And then he becomes a mere human during his life on earth, and then he dies not on a cross, but on a torture stake, and he's not res there's no resurrection, but he becomes the disembodied angel Michael again, and that's how he lives to this day. And it becomes this very different Jesus, this very different gospel, which, as Paul says, is really no gospel at all. And one of the key verses, if you, if you engage with someone who, who would be a part of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, which is their official full name, or a Jehovah's Witnesses, one of the key verses they will go to is our verse tonight. And that is Colossians 1.15. So if you have your Bibles, open them up, or you have a smartphone or device, turn it on, open up a Bible app, and take a look at Colossians 1. And it would be, if you have it in front of you, it'll be really helpful because I want you to see a couple things. It's also on the back of your, uh, or inside your, your bulletin. It's printed on the inside right-hand side. And I'll explain a little bit about kind of some things, but I want you to start noticing something in this over these next few minutes, this study that we do. I th I th I'm hoping some things that we start to become aware of that, that might surprise you and you maybe haven't seen before. But 1 Corinthians 1.15, it says he, the context, we'll get to it, Paul's writing to the church at Colossae about the person of Jesus. And he said, he is the image of the invisible God, the, what's the word, first word there? The firstborn over all creation. Well, wait a minute. Firstborn, I mean, we were just talking about Jesus being uncreated, you know, the uncreated creator. Are, are the Jehovah's Witnesses correct? Well, if you're into real estate, what are the three most important things? What is it? Location, location, location. If you're into reading the Bible, the three most important things, context, context, context. Always read context. Now, let me just say a thing about this before we read it. This, it, it's an ancient poem or an ancient hymn. In fact, scholars aren't quite sure if Paul wrote this himself, if, if he's just crafted this, or if it's something that has been handed to him many times in uh, 1 Corinthians, I think it's 14, Paul talks about um, the message that was entrusted to me. He said, I'm just passing on what I received. So either he received it, and it's a well-known Christian source, something he's creating, or, or maybe something in between. Maybe he's taking these ideas and he's crafting them in his own writing and and talking about uh, kind of adapting these ideas. But it's laid out on the inside of your bulletin so you can kind of see, because it's a poem, you can kind of see how it works. 
right? If you've ever studied literature or read a poem, its structure and its form kind of helps you figure out what it means sometimes. So that's why it's kind of broken up that way to help you see what's really there. Now, let me give you just a tip before we read it, okay? Um, in Hebrew, now, Paul's writing in Greek, but he's a Hebrew-trained person. He thinks in Hebrew. His, you know, our, our, our thinking is formed by our language oftentimes. In Hebrew, this is the exact same way with English. The word head has a lot of different meanings, right? I mean, what are some examples? How do we use the word, and don't want to say the word bathroom. I'll just get it out of the way right now. That, that we use the word head, speaking of corporations, businesses, families, whatever it might be. How, what are some ways that, that we use that word? overseeing, okay, like the head of a business or of a company, a leader, head of a family, that could be a similar thing, they're a leader, having authority, okay. Um, what are headwaters? Okay, it's the start of an outflow of something where, where something begins, um, not so much today, because we're a little different, but most cultures in the ancient world, if you were uh, at the head of the table, didn't have to, it's not like, oh, dad sits at the head of the table. If you, if you hosted people, and, and you had people, and if you were the head of the table, you are, you are the one who is um, paying for things. You're taking care of things. You're making sure of it. You know, we talk about a host, but that makes you think of just the person who's kind of like, would you like a seat? The person, this... Um, this, this host, he's, he or she is the patron. They're, they're picking up the bill for it. So the head of a table in that sense. So um, it, it can be a lot of different things, can't it? It can be a host. It can be the person who's in charge. It can be the person who's, you know, the tip of the spear, the person who is in the front leading things in some way. If you have a heading on a paper, what is that? Well, yeah, the title, it's, it's explanatory, the head explains, it, it, it defines, okay? So a lot of ideas of what head means, okay? And we get this. And English is the exact same as Hebrew in that sense. Hebrew uses the word head and has all of these vast meanings. So here's what I want you to see. What Paul's doing, quite ingeniously, again, either he did it, someone else did it, or he and someone else adapted it or something. They're exploring that one word. He's exploring the concept of headship or headwaters, or all these different things in a beautifully poetic way. He does this in other books of his. This isn't unique here. He says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He's using it in different ways and talking about how it all works. So read with me in context. 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll just read through verse 20. He, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything that was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That's section one, okay? Now here's something in the middle that is gonna tie these sections together. He is before all things. Headwaters kind of idea. By him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. Okay, now section three. And notice how section three kind of parallels section one. He is the beginning, the firstborn 
there's that word again. We just earlier was firstborn of what? Creation. Now he says the firstborn from the dead. So that he might come to have first place, that's preeminence, in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself. By making peace through the blood of the cross. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now did you notice, okay, three sections here. Section one and section two. They're similar structure, okay. Section one, primarily it's saying Jesus is responsible for what? Creation. He's, he's responsible for, he's the head of creation, okay? He's the boss, he's in charge, he's the headwaters. He's, he's exploring all these ideas of Jesus' relationship, his role to the created physical cosmos, okay? And then what's the third section about? He's the head. In what way is he the firstborn, the head? Preeminence, first. From the dead, new creation. He's saying there's a new thing God's doing, and he's also the head, the preeminent one, the headwaters, the beginning, all that stuff, of that too. So here's the point. Jesus is the main character of both stories. He's saying Jesus is the main character of creation. Yeah, it talks about Adam and Eve and animals and all these spheres of all the... But Jesus actually is the main character of it. Jesus is the main character of new creation breaking out, of the restoration the reconciliation of all things that are broken and bent and messed up and screwed up. So what's part two about? Well, part two, this is what ties these two things together. Look at verse 17. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. Well, wait, so what about firstborn language here, right? Um, here's a place where Hebrew is different than English, <laughs> as far as the use of the word firstborn, and this is why it can be a little challenging, a little tricky. In English, what does firstborn mean? It's pretty simple. You're born first, right? <laughs> You're the eldest child or the only child, right? That's, I mean, that's what it, you, you, you kind of exhausted its lexical meaning right there. <laughs> firstborn means firstborn. Um, what does it mean in Hebrew? Well, it can mean that. You're the firstborn offspring or the only offspring. But it means much more than that. Uh, take a look at Psalm 89. Psalm 89, this, this is a psalm where the psalmist is talking about God's faithfulness and covenant and God, I know you're in charge and you haven't left us and you're kind of going to do things and you got plans and you're sort of a sovereign one and all that. And in the psalm, he, he says, um, he, he's sort of quoting from God, <laughs> And so he quotes from God in, in Psalm 89. He says, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn an oath to David, my servant. And the whole rest of the psalm is about David. Okay, so David's kind of the principal guy in this psalm. And God goes on to say in the psalm about David, I will establish your offspring forever, build up your throne for all generations. Uh, I have found David my servant. I have anointed him um, with my sacred oil, verse 21, my hand will always be with him. My arm will strengthen him. Verse 26, he will call to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. And verse 27, I will also make him my 
firstborn, greatest of the kings of the earth. This is really interesting. Now, if you know anything about Old Testament history, saying David is the firstborn is, why is that odd? Yeah, he's not. <laughs> he's not the eldest. You, you remember the story when, remember who the first king of Israel was? Saul kind of blows it. Guy self-destructs. And then um, God, God sends this prophet Samuel, and he goes, I'm going go, to go pick a new king. And so Samuel's going from like family to family and tribe to tribe and looking and trying to see, is there anyone? The guy goes, that's him. And so he, got, he finds this guy named Jesse, and he's like, you got a lot of boys, and can you bring them out? And he kind of goes down the line, and he's like, you sure this is it? You don't have anything else? And of course, he's like, well, yeah, David. But I mean, he's a kid, you know, he, meaning he's, he's the youngest, clearly not him. He goes, well, would you just go get him? I kind of, you know, I, I, I got to do my job. And so he gets David, and God says, that's the one. And so David, David is picked. So to call David firstborn clearly does not mean our English sense of firstborn. Instead, when the Bible refers to David as firstborn, it means he's the preeminent one. It's about him. He's the guy. He's the guy. That's what this means by someone being firstborn. Um, and so the context of this him, this poem, shows that Jesus, not that he's the creation of the Father, in that sense firstborn, but that he's, he's the exalted creator of all things in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. And that he's actually the principal character of the, he's the guy. What's the whole story about? What's God doing in history? He's the guy. So what's life about? What's the purpose? He's the guy. It's, it's lifting up in a, in a poetic way saying, he's the headwaters. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn, firstborn over creation. Me, he's the firstborn of the new creation that God is planning. And if, you, if, you're, if there's any doubt in your mind, like, well, did Paul really believe that? Well, remember we always said, read context, read letters. These are letters. So read what he said just a few sentences later. Uh, Colossians 2.8. Let me read for you, Paul. Now, this is the same continuous flow of thought, same guy. And he says this, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy, hollow philosophy, empty deceit, based on human tradition, based on the element, elemental forces of the world, and not based on the guy, Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells in him bodily. Think of that, bodily. He's saying, basically, when Jesus was on the earth, bodily, when he was embodied, the fullness of deity dwelled in him right there. He's the guy. Wow, that's kind of saying a lot. And you have been filled by him who is the, oh, there's that word again that he kind of keeps coming back to in this letter. He is the head for every ruler, every authority. Uh, one of Jesus's closest disciples, John, in the gospel that bears his name, the very first words that he puts onto the page are these, John 1.1. 1, 1. He says, in the beginning, now this, this sounds a lot like the first book of the Bible, remember? Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth. And, and John's mimicking that. John 1.1, 1, 1, he says, in the beginning was the word, logos, 
a little later in verse 14, he explains who he means by that. He goes, it's, it's the guy. It's Jesus. <laughs> in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now get this. This is kind of cool. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. It's rather wordy, isn't it? <laughs> here's, here's, I think, what he's doing, though. Let me see if I can... Um, so I, okay, this isn't it. Um, I just got this new, uh, is it messed up? Oh, that's not good. Thank you. Okay. This might be a horrible app, and I'll never use it again. I just got it. I found it today, and I'm like, I'm going to try this thing out. I don't have any good apps. So here essentially is what John is saying, okay? He's saying this. Now, there are essentially everything that is, everything that exists will fall into one of two categories. You see the two categories up there? There's uncreated and then created. Things that are eternal, you might say necessary, but they're eternal, uncreated. And then there are things which, which are um, created. So question here. How about this one? Where does that go? God. Yeah. If there's a God, he's a necessary being. He, his, his existence is necessary. He has to exist. He can't not exist, okay? He would be this uncreated creator. He would be Aristotle's uh, uncaused cause if there's this God. Now, if there are things like um, animals, yeah, they came into being, okay? They haven't always existed. They don't have to exist in every possible world. There's, yeah, they're not necessary beings. They're created beings, what about people? Yeah, created beings. So here's the big question. Where does Jesus go? So think about the words of this passage. He says, John says this, everything that's in this category, everything that has been created came how? It was created through and by and for and all this thing. Jesus. So everything in category B <laughs> was created through Jesus. So therefore, is it possible that I could put Jesus in category B? No. See, John isn't, John's not just saying Jesus created everything. He's saying every single thing was, that has come into existence, that has that property of coming into existence, <laughs> was created by him. Well, Jesus would have to exist first to create himself, which is a logical contradiction. It doesn't make any sense. Jesus couldn't be created, and then everything that's created, including himself, was created by him. That just doesn't make sense. And that's what John is trying to underscore and underline, and that's why it feels kind of like a mouthful. Everything that has been created, you know, you're just like, what are you trying to say? Because he wants you to get it. He wants me to get it. Jesus is the uncreated creator of all things. So again, do you see what this means? Let's take a look at, at this passage. As I was reading this passage this week, the, the uh, Colossians 1 starts out, and, and Paul, because th this poem comes like really early. If you've got your like paper Bible, or uh, you can see it comes really, really early. In fact, it comes right after Paul just starts saying, hey guys, you know what I pray for you? You ever have people say that? 
my mom is like one of these great texters. Like she'll text me and be like, hey, today I was praying, not just praying for you, but I was praying that, you know, this would, have, this would work out and that you'd have real wisdom in this scenario and praying for... Paul's saying, you know what I pray for you guys, like as a, as a people, as a community? And then this is essentially what, what he does. This is in verse nine. He says, for this reason, since the day we heard this, man, we haven't stopped praying for you. We're asking, here's specifically what I'm praying. Um, we're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom spiritual understanding. If you've got your Bibles open, look at all the things he's specifically asking for. Wisdom, spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of God, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit, you know, being effective in what you do, in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power. That, man, that's a good thing. According to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience, joy, thankfulness, where you become someone who's like thankful to what God's done in your life. Um, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of the Son. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him. And then he jumps into the poem, or to the hymn. And to be honest, when I was first reading it, I was kind of like, did he get distracted? Is he like just so excited and got all lathered up that he thought he would kind of throw a poem in because it just, it, it seems like, well, why, why that? Here's my prayer, and then let me give you this kind of poem thing here. Um, and I think what he's telling the Colossians and what we can pick up from this is he's saying this. The only way for, for them to really increase in wisdom, increase in effectiveness, in their life, to live with a sense of peace, to have joy despite any circumstance, to, to live a, a life with like gratitude kind of characterizes who, like the only way for you to live a human flourishing life, the only way, there's one thing you need, and without it you won't have any of those things, and that's the centrality and the supremacy of the person of Jesus. He's the guy. It's all about him, not just in creation in the future, right now. It's all about him. And unless my life is, oh, it's all about him, all those things, the wisdom and the joy and the power and the peace, and it'll, it'll be like grasping at the wind. <laughs> I'll never have it. And so real quickly, if you have your, your um, outline, a couple points to fill in here. The first one that I suggest, what, what you'll see, what I see as I look at this passage that answers that question, okay, so how can I really live with like, that, all that stuff that Paul was talking about. The first thing is, it's by looking at Jesus that we discover who God is. Um, <clears throat> I, I mentioned week one, one of the things that my summer involved was like this horrendous, hellish move of selling a house. And, but, and we're super glad that we're in a new house, but it's just, it was hard, it's difficult. And so in our, in our new home, when, like when I walk into the entryway of it, the sort of an entryway, and then like it kind of curves, there's this weird kind of wall that's like, it's not straight looking at me, but it's kind of like angled, you know what I mean? And then there's like a curved hallway, and you can kind of see into the family room, like the great room over there. But when I walk in, there's this, like a hallway that goes to two bedrooms over here, and my, my oldest son, Keaton, he's at this, this is apparently a 14-year-old. 14-year-olds love to scare people. Like, I mean, truly get joy out of just 
fear, it, like shrieking. And it doesn't matter if it's your older grandma or your mom or your siblings or your dad. I mean, it's just, there's this, and I can see it in his face. It's true. He revels. He's just like, ah. He like, he'll shriek sometimes afterwards of joy. Like he truly enjoys scaring. And I remember thinking, I was like, there's going to be countless, my life is going to shorten because daily I'm going to walk in and I will go around and he's going to be right there and scare me, you know, or he'll throw it off. He'll do it every third day and so, to make it work. And so this kind of odd wall, we, we had this big mirror that was in our bedroom, like a big, kind of the ones that like lean against the wall. And I'm like, I'm nailing that sucker to the wall. So I got, I did, I got this big mirror from our bedroom and I put it on this wall that's like this big and it's angled. So the second I walk in the door, what I, bang, I can see right down that hall. And I'm like, and I know what the, you know, I know what the kids are doing and all that sort of thing. <clears throat> see, here's the thing. Scripture tells us no one has seen the Father. No one knows what he's like. No one knows his heart. It's like there's a wall in between us and God. And yet what I learned from this passage is that Jesus, what what does that first verse say there? He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the mirror image of the one on the other side of the wall, I can't see him. I don't know what he's like. I wonder what he's like. I wonder what his intentions are. Jesus is the mirror image of what God is like. And so there have been religions, philosophical systems, individuals. I, you know, we hear this all the time. I think there's something out there. I think there's something on the other side of the wall. I think, you know, I think something or someone exists. I think there's a God. I think there's of energy. I don't know. I think there's something. But see, with Jesus, we find ourselves looking at the true God himself. Jesus is the very representation of God. You want to know, what does God think about this aspect of my life? Jesus. What is, how, does, how does God respond when I rebel, when I blow it, when I deny him? How did, how did Jesus, what does God do when I say, man, I've blown it, would you forgive me? What did Jesus do? Jesus is the exact representation of God himself. And the great part of that is that the more we look at Jesus, the more I realize that the true God, the true God of the universe, the I don't know something, someone out there, whatever, I don't know, the true God of the universe is a God of utter self-giving love. See, that's why this poem comes right after Paul's prayer that the Colossians will learn how to be grateful because if you see Jesus, if you see that's the heart of God, how am I going to live? Of course I'm going to live grateful because the God, the one who holds the world in his hands is for me. I'm going to live grateful. I'm going to live differently. Number two, Jesus holds together the old world and the new world, creation and new creation. Remember we said the first part of the poem, it says he's, he's, the, he's the preeminent, the firstborn, the preeminent one of or over creation. And the second one, he's, he's the preeminent one of the resurrection that is going to happen someday. Let me see if I can find these two. I've not all oh, good. Because I'm never going to use this app again. Um, this is kind of like a picture of it. Old creation and 
new creation. And see, the reality is oftentimes um, we can sometimes kind of sell Christianity or I've heard Christianity talked about, preached, whatever, as sort of this idea of, hey, how would you like to get out of here when it's over? You know what I mean? How would you like sort of a, a guarantee that you won't have to stay here? And, and language of heaven conjured up more images of non-earth, non-physical, disembodiment, and that's my hope. I remember as a kid when, because I think that was my conception early on, and honestly, it was, it was, it was scary to me. I remember as a child when I, I don't know what age it was, thinking about it, and I remember thinking of darkness. And I don't know why, but I just said, no, no body, I got no eyeballs. I don't know what to do. You know, I don't know. It just, but it was like, it's, it's not, I know stuff. I know things. But what's no stuff? That sounds scary. I don't like that idea. Well, that's not the ultimate picture the Bible talks about. And we've talked about this a lot of times in here. And I think it's really important that we in the Western church get it. That this is not about some sort of self-ejection from this world. What is it? See, in the person of Jesus... Old creation, beautiful but broken and sinful and messed up, comes in back into contact with God's space, with new creation. And Jesus, he is the center point of those two. So in the person of Jesus, I'm seeing where this and what will be touch. So it's not about me getting out of here. It's about the, king, the return of the king. It's about him coming back and setting all to right. Oh, that's a lot more appealing. Somehow that resonates with me. That still involves stuff, you know, but it's perfected stuff. God made stuff. He likes stuff. And so it's a totally different picture for what God has in mind. See, all humans, I think, live in a tension. I love this world. I like it. You know, I like new things. I like things. I like stuff. I like people. I like jobs. I, I like certain things, okay? But there's also a lot of things that I really don't like. There, there's bitterness and, and there's ugliness and hatred and sorrow and tears and a lot of things I don't like at all about it. And there's a lot of different approaches you can do. A lot of philosophical systems will say, well, maybe evil just is not that important. No, it is. We've got to deal with it. It's real. And then some philosophical systems go so far, the Eastern worldviews, where they say, well, it's just an illusion. Evil doesn't really, really exist which doesn't do justice to the tears, to the evil that we experience. And see, this hymn reminds us that Jesus is the one through whom and for whom the whole first creation came about. All of the, all of the beautiful things. Think about all the things that when you see, you, re- you just go, man, that's awesome. How many of you have gone outdoors driving and the turning of the leaves or you see this? I was talking to someone. They said they did a hike to, I think, Bear Lake, and they said, man, or no, it, wasn't, it was some place, some falls above that or something, I don't know. And they got there, and they said, when I got there, it was just the sense of like, oh, wow. Do you know why? That's because of Jesus. That was his idea. That was his handiwork. That's, that's part of his creation. N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, writes this. When the lavish and generous beauty of the world makes you catch your breath, remember that it is like that because of Jesus. (laughs) I love that. 
When you see something, you just catch your breath. Remember, you know why it's that way? Because of Jesus. He's the guy. But remember, it's also full of ugliness. It's, it's full of death. But that's not the original intent. This, this creation over here, the one that's broken and fallen, came about because of human rebellion. And so it's very ugly and very messy. But God has acted to bring the spheres back together. How? The person of Jesus. God has acted in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn overall creation, old world. And he's the firstborn of new creation. He's the touching point. I think it was Pastor Jeff, was it this last weekend where he talked about thin spaces? Made me think of that. It's this touching point behind, between these two, two things. Third thing, last one. Jesus is therefore the blueprint for the genuine humanness, which is our offer through the gospel. Jesus is the blueprint for what it means to be fully human. See, as, as the head of the body, the church, as the first to rise again from the dead, not just being resuscitated, but a resurrected body that's immortal, uh, imperishable, incorruptible, immortal. As the first one through whose cruel death on a cross, God brought peace between him and me, brought reconciliation as the one through whom new creation has actually begun. Do you realize that? Think about that. We're not just waiting. Yes, we're waiting, but we're not waiting for something that hasn't happened. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. He's the hope. Anytime you go to a Christian funeral, it's the sadness, but the hope is what? I'm guaranteed I'll be resurrected. Why? Because someone, No, because Jesus was. He went through it first. He was the first one. There's a guarantee that my life will not end in the grave. I will not be worm food. I will experience resurrection. That's my hope, not disembodiment. We oftentimes say when someone has been suffering, they die, say, we're healed, or they're healed now. No, not exactly. They're disembodied. Their broken body's still in the ground, still broken. The hope is one day God will reunite them with a perfect resurrected body like Jesus, which will never die. No more tears. New creation. That's the person of Jesus. And what Paul, I think, is saying here, it's only, it's only, it is only as I gaze daily, moment by moment, on the beauty of the person of Jesus that I can live, as Paul said, here's my prayer for you, that you live a life that flourishes, you've got joy, you've got peace, you live with gratitude and thankfulness. You're, no matter what the situations might come in your life, there's a buoyancy, there's something that doesn't decay, no matter where you're gonna lose people and you're gonna have your heart broken and all these different things, but you will not be in utter dismay. Why? Because new creation and as you gaze upon it daily, as, as I make that my center, as I'm reminded every day that I get up, he's the guy. And I live my life following him as an apprentice of this new part of new creation who is himself the creator. Wow, that's the only way I can do it. And so tonight what we're gonna do, we're going to gaze at that promise of new creation. It's just in the form of a symbol. It's, it's a piece of bread that Jesus, before, before he touched those together, old creation and new creation through his resurrection, he said, I've got to go through death first. 
But this is how you can be guaranteed that it's not over. It's not the end. And so he took, took this meal and he took the bread, physical substance. I like, like it because it's stuff and I like stuff and God's okay with stuff. And then he took a cup and he said, this bread's my body, this cup is my blood shed for you so that you know it won't end there. And so tonight, what I want us to do during this next song, Andrew's gonna sing a song for us. And I want us to go to one of, one, two, three, four, gluten-free table in the back, five tables, um, and do it just whenever you want to. You might want to sit for a couple of minutes and kind of reflect, that's fine. Take the elements, and I would just ask you to reflect on them. Look at them. Think about what's behind them, and hear your father say, he's the guy.